we are in the home stretch with the, the book of Daniel. You guys feel it? Like it's coming to a close here. I think, I actually think we're going to finish this book this month, believe it or not. We're going to close it out. As a reminder, sort of what we've been going through this entire time, this book, the study, ultimately, we are not looking um, just to know these stories. There's a lot of really good stories in Daniel, a lot of good, even like Sunday school stories. Our goal is not just to know the stories uh, and have better knowledge of the background, uh, but ultimately, there's something in these stories that are valuable for what it looks like to live as faithful exiles. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. We're looking for what does it look like to live as a faithful exile, to live as one who is not at home yet still faithful. So for many, many generations, this book has been that, has been a guidebook for what it looks like to be as a faithful exile, to encourage faithfulness and steadfastness in the midst of options, in the midst of conflict and strife. Chapter 10, as we're jumping in tonight, begins the end. Chapter 10 is the beginning of the end. 10 through 12 form one cohesive thought, one cohesive section, a single climactic visionary experience that Daniel has at the end of his life. It's really the finale of this prophetic book. It's the finale of this even the section of these apocalyptic visions. And it would be a good idea, I would suggest, because we're going to do 10 tonight and then possibly 11, 12 next week. We'll see. It's Because it's one cohesive thought, but it's a big vision, <laughs> chapter 11. I'd encourage you over the next week or two, because it's going to take us a couple of weeks, read 10 through 12 together as one flowing thought. Just spend some time with those. Don't give up halfway through chapter 11. That's, that's the cha challenge. It could be easy to give up is in chapter 11, so don't give up. Read it through. Persevere. Chapter 10, little introduction. Chapter 10 is really, it's like a prelude. Uh, it provides backdrop. It's the sort of the setting. It speaks... Um, of the date and time when things were happening. And it provides this backdrop to a very detailed vision that we have recorded in chapter 11. And then chapter 12 is like a conclusion, both for the book, but ultimately for this vision. Chapter 10 shows us when and how the vision would come. Chapter 11 is the vision that Daniel's talking about. And 12 is conclusion. In chapter 10, we don't actually get very much information about this vision. Very little, actually. All we get here about the vision that Daniel has is that it is a great conflict that is coming, and that the word was true, and that somehow Daniel understood it. And you get all that from chapter 10, verse 1. There's a great conflict coming, it's true, and Daniel understood it. But what we do get, 
What we do learn from Daniel's experience in chapter 10 is very important. Daniel, Daniel chapter 10 is, a, again, a pulling back of the curtain. This, this whole, since chapter 7, it's been a bit of an apocalypse, right? The pulling back of the curtain and a view into what is happening beyond uh, what we can see in the physical. So we're looking into the spiritual realm, and there is a very real, very active war that's raging behind the scenes. And you get a picture of that in this chapter. Abraham Kuyper said this. He said, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spirit world became behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so conclusive, so sweeping, everything within its rage, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comp- comparison to be a mere game. The reality is, and this is what we see in this chapter, there is more beyond the, behind the scenes So as Daniel's talking about kings rising up and kingdoms coming down and Persia coming onto the scene and then Greece, what's happening behind all of that? Is that just prideful arrogance of kings wanting more and more power? That, I'm sure, plays into it. But Daniel's giving us a picture of what's happening behind the scenes. And I think for me, at least, Daniel 10 provides a bit of a critique on my prayer life. I would hope it's the same for you. As you read this chapter, it it should provide a bit of a critique. If this chapter is true, it's the scripture, so it is, then why don't we pray more? Why don't we fast more? Why don't we pray with more fervency and more passion and more, more intentionality? If this chapter is true, then where, why are we lethargic when it comes to prayer? It seems like, from chapter 10, that in some real way, some real tangible way, prayer plays a part in spiritual warfare, in what's going on behind the scenes, in the rising and the falling of kingdoms and powers and authorities. The passage that Britton just read from Ephesians 6, I think as an explanation of what we see here in chapter Daniel 10, makes it clear that when we pray, we're reinforcing a battle that is already taking place. We are standing against, as Paul says, rulers and against authorities, cosmic powers, not comic powers, Uh, cosmic powers over present darkness against spiritual forces and evil in the heavenly places. Those Those are big, big things. Cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. But the word for us is that your prayers matter. They actually are involved in that battle. They make a real difference in spiritual conflict. So as we dive into chapter 10 tonight, we're going to kind of walk through it. We need to keep in mind this reality behind the scenes, that your prayer matters. It is effective. As disciples of Jesus, 
the challenge we have even from Paul here is that we are to stand in the place of prayer. We're to stand firm in prayer. So we're going to jump into chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, open it up. I think it'll be on the screen. But let's, we're going to walk through chapter 10, Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. He understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. And I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for a full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, and then he goes on. These first four verses are packed with detail. So much detail, but it's very easy to overlook and just move past it. It's like it's setting the tone. This all happens in the third year of King Cyrus. Does anybody remember when chapter 9 happened? From last week. The first year. This happens in the third year of King Cyrus, and Daniel's receiving a vision. That vision we have written down in chapter 11. What this tells us, first of all, is that Daniel is elderly. Daniel's probably in his mid to late 80s. The lion's den, that story that we looked at now several months ago, that's either recently happened in chronological time or is about to happen. I've actually read some commentators think that from this period of him fasting for this 21 days, that may have been what resulted in the lion den. Daniel's an old man. If you remember from chapter 9, Daniel was praying and he was making confession before the Lord. He was asking that he ultimately, that the Lord would return his people and end the exile. He said the 70 years is up. What we know from these first four verses is Daniel didn't have to wait long to learn that his prayer that he had made in the last chapter had been effective. Shortly after he had made that confession, after he had prayed for mercy, the proclamation came from King Cyrus announcing the end of Israel's 70 years of exile in Babylon, and they would return. All of this is recorded. You can read it, Ezra chapter 1. Let's just read it for the sake of, so you don't think it's just me saying this. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus, a few years earlier, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. It said this, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with you. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his, pal- of his place with silver and gold and with good and with beasts, besides free will offerings to the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So what's happened is there's a first wave of exiles. Just as they went into exile in waves, now they're leaving. We're told from Ezra chapter 2, 42,360 men, women, and children return. 42,360 That's a very small amount of those who had gone into exile. Traveling with them, there's 200 male and female singers, 981 horses, 435 camels. The list goes on and on. But who is not with them? Daniel. Daniel's not with them. For whatever reason, he's not there. Think about it for a second. Think about Daniel. He's now in his mid to late 80s. Imagine him standing beneath the great Babylonian gate, watching his people begin the journey to return home. This trip reversed the course that they had been forced to make when he was a young man. It reversed the exile that he had been forced to go into decades ago. Perhaps he stood and he watched until his people disappeared. Couldn't even see the smoke from the caravan. It took that group leaving probably seven months before an altar would be built in their homeland. took another year, or another year's time would pass before the news would be reached, would reach Daniel that under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Israel had rebuilt and dedicated city walls. It'd be at least two more years, and Daniel would learn that the work had stalled. The work had stopped. Indeed, we looked at chapter 9 last week. Their opposition had arose and had stalled the work. What we find in this chapter, an elderly Daniel who had spent a lifetime believing and hoping for this return, we find him longing for another word from the Lord about the welfare of his people, about the development of the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of worship in his homeland. The timing of all this is fascinating to me, too, because as indicated in verse 2, Daniel had been mourning for three weeks. It says that this all occurred on the 24th day of the first month. Anybody know what that means? 
24th day of the first month. What happens on the 14th day of the first month? Fourth day of the first month, sorry. Passover. This all happens shortly after the celebration of Passover. And here we have Daniel, still very much in exile, still living in Babylon, still living under foreign rule. And for the first time since those early chapters, he refers to himself as Belshazzar. It's fascinating to me that for the first time, he's not even under Babylonian rule anymore. The Persians are in place. Caesar, or, sorry, not Caesar. Cyrus is in, is in charge. And he refers to himself as Belshazzar. Why? I think Daniel is very much wrestling with the reality that he is still in exile. He is still in Babylon. He's reminding himself of that journey that he took as a boy when he'd be forced into the school of Babylonian ethics and his name would be changed. He's reminding himself of these things. And for whatever reason, as he's stayed in Babylon, there's lots of people who have lots of ideas of why, but for whatever reason, he's there, Passover, has come. Passover is the festival. It's followed by the festival of unleavened bread. In this season, this period of time when the children of Israel celebrated and remembered their, their uh, deliverance from Egypt, the breaking of bondage, and their freedom to go and worship as they wanted And just like that first exodus, the people had been freed. They were going back to the promised land. But here we have Daniel. And things are still not right. Things are still not as they're supposed to be for Daniel. Only a small company would return. And it would not be easy. They'd be faced with conflict. And it seems like Daniel, possibly hearing reports from his homeland, he's mourning for three weeks. He chose not to anoint himself with oil. What that means is he intentionally made himself uncomfortable. It was a very dry and humid climate, and he intentionally made himself uncomfortable. We don't know if this was private or public, but what we do know is that God heard Daniel's plea. God saw his humiliation and his fasting and that he responded. What happens next and through the rest of this chapter is amazing. As Daniel is out by the river, he's approximately 20 miles outside of the capital city. He's 10 days after the Passover, 21 days into his fast his prolonged period of focused prayer, intentional fasting, and he sees a divine or an angelic being of some sort. 
Let's look at it. Chapter 10, verse 5. Daniel says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I re retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Daniel sees this being. He sees a, a son of man figure, a man, but clearly more than just a man. Some scholars say this is an angel. Some scholars think that he maybe was the angel of the Lord, the captain of the armies of the Lord, or a pre-incarnate Jesus figure. It makes sense that they go there because the description here is very similar to what John saw in the book of Revelation when he sees and describes the glorified Messiah. Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 16. Then I turned, just look for the similarities here. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. His hair on his head was white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Whoever this was that Daniel saw, it was different than all of Daniel's previous experiences with heavenly beings. He had recently had a conversation with Gabriel, an archangel, but he didn't respond the same way. Something was different. Something was unique about this experience. And I'm not going to speculate, just for what it's worth, on who that was. I think there's problems with both. But I will say, whoever that was, whatever that was that he saw, had been in the presence of Yahweh. Because the same response happens consistently when a human encounters a being that had been in the presence of the Almighty God. They fall on their face as though dead. Further adding to these similarities, though, between Messiah, Jesus, and this 
being that Daniel saw is the response of both Daniel and John. Daniel 10, 11 and, or 10, 10, 10 and 11. And behold, a hand touched me, and he set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand these words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken his words to me, I stood up trembling. Look again at Revelation, Revelation 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell on his feet as, sorry, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. We don't actually know what's going on here in Daniel. But clearly this is somebody with some power, some strength, been in the presence of Yahweh, the glory. Just like Moses, when he went and saw, spoke to God, and came off the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God. So much so that the people responded to him as if he was God. Something is at least happening like that, at a very minimum. It's intriguing, too, that the angel said to Daniel, O man, greatly loved. Which is intriguing to me also that John also is described as the one greatly loved. He's described as the beloved. So apparently this encounter was just simply too much for Daniel, definitely for his companions. Daniel falls down on his face, and his friends run in terror. Daniel's left alone, completely undone by what he has seen. He's physically wiped out. He's drained completely of his physical strength, incapable of standing. This vision finished him off. He falls into a deep sleep on his face on the ground, verse 9 says. Just like Isaiah before him, he couldn't handle the vision. He was overwhelmed. And then, as he is touched and brought back to his feet by this being, this angel says something incredible. And all we're told is Daniel stands there trembling. Verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you have set your heart to understanding and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of his chief priests, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of per kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for a day yet to come. Verse 12 is mind-blowing if you take a second and just let it sink in. 
Verse 12 is the one that I was talking about that should convict us about our prayer life. God heard Daniel's prayer from the moment he began praying. From the moment Daniel set his heart to pray, God heard. And he sent an answer immediately. Why? Because Daniel sought the Lord, and our God is faithful. And Daniel, knowing that God was in full control, knowing that he had nowhere else to turn, knowing that God was the only one sovereign and powerful and able to accomplish whatever he wanted to do, Daniel humbled himself. He knew that God was sovereign. And yet at the same time, he knew that prayer made a difference. He knew that even when he didn't see or hear or experience a response, God was faithful. And he understood that somehow there's this mysterious dance between God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. That God is fully capable of doing what he sees fit. And yet he longs to partner with us. He waits sometimes for you to pray. Read some quotes this week from Corrie ten Boom. She said this We never know how God will answer our prayers, but we can expect that He will get us involved in His plan for the answer. If we are true intercessors, we must be ready to take part in God's work on behalf of the people for whom we pray. Look, we, we all believe, we would all say, we were, we'd all say prayer is important. I don't think any of you would say prayer is not important. Prayer is of no value to me. We all say that. But I think for Daniel or for Corey Tim Boom or for the saints of old, the, anybody who's been a part of anything fantastic that God has done throughout history, Prayer is not just important. Prayer is essential. That means that there are things that simply will not happen unless we pray. Daniel lived a life of prayer. He lived as though prayer was essential. So much so that we have the story of the lion's den. Prayer is essential. He was convinced that certain things simply would not happen without faithfulness in prayer, without getting on his knees and humble intercession before his God. 
And like I said at the beginning, this, this passage peels back the curtains and shows us that while Daniel was fasting in prayer, not getting a clear response, mind you, not hearing clearly any response. While he's fasting and praying, divine beings are in conflict and engaging each other. And Daniel is unaware. Archangels and demonic powers are waging war and struggling in a very real and tangible way behind the scenes when prayer happens things move. This angel said, from the first day that you set your heart to understanding and humble yourself, your words have been heard, and I have, become, I have come because of your words, but the prince of Persia has withstood me for 21 days. And then Michael, one of your chief princes, another angel. He came to help me, for I was left there with the prince, with the kings of Persia. The prince of Persia, chief priests, kings of Persia, angelic beings. All of this is real and happening behind the scenes. What's being described here is what I think Paul in the New Testament called principalities and powers. There seems to be, there's not a whole lot of clarity on this, but it seems to be that there are a ranking system and high-ranking demonic powers with authority over entire nations and regions. That's, I think, what this passage is showing us. Pulling the proverbial puppet strings of kings and kingdoms. You guys, this is still the reality today. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Behind the scenes, there is demonic powers and principalities waging war against the kingdom, pulling proverbial puppet strings, raising up presidents and leaders and kings and all the things. This is why we read Ephesians 6. I think that's what we see in Ephesians 6. Or again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see that our prayers are involved somehow in this battle. 2 Corinthians 10, let's read this one since we read the other one earlier. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against, according to the flesh. For, our weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when, when your obedience is complete. You guys, we, when we pray, when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, when we live out the implications of that gospel, when we do good and we display the implications of that gospel, when we live out this inaugurated kingdom that we live in, 
We live as citizens of a different world, as aliens and strangers. We are destroying strongholds and tearing down lofty opinions that exalt themselves before our God. It's also worth pointing out, though, that Daniel, in this passage, at least from what we see in the text, he wasn't trying to take on the prince of Persia. He wasn't trying to engage in some specific spiritual warfare where he's going to take on this prince. He wasn't trying to engage in the next level of spiritual warfare, whatever that is. What he was doing was being faithful to take his burden before the Lord. He was being faithful to go before Yahweh in prayer, to take his petition and his mourning and his his frustration with the reality of the situation that he finds himself in, still there in Babylon, and the way that he finds his people in, struggling to rebuild the wall and ultimately the temple in Jerusalem. He takes that before God. And God went to war. God dispatched archangels and spiritual beings. Our job is to seek the face of Jesus. Our job is to seek Jesus. Yes, the reality is, just like Daniel here in the latter part of his life, things are not right. We have the hope of a second coming, with the hope of a new heavens and new earth, hope of the reality of the kingdom manifest here on the earth, but things are not as they are supposed to be. And our charge, our challenge, is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to set our eyes firmly on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we know that Jesus then is moved to action on behalf of our prayers. The typical verse that comes to mind here, 2 Chronicles 7.14. We all know this one, I hope. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray that he'll hear from heaven. He'll forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the promise. For me, though, this begs the question, this speculation, but what would have happened if Daniel stopped praying at day 14? What if he got frustrated with the lack of an answer and stopped praying at day 14. It's probably foolish to really speculate. It's not what happened. But just for the sake of thinking, Daniel's praying for 21 days, and the whole time, unknown to him, spiritual beings are in conflict. And on day 21, 
It's not a magic number, by the way. It's not like, oh, I'm going to do a 21-day fast and I'm going to get a breakthrough. On day 21, for whatever reason, in this particular situation, there's a breakthrough. And Daniel gets the word from the Lord. You guys, we are so discipled by Amazon and our microwave, we want it now. Two days at best. We want instant, prime results. And here we see Daniel, 21 days with no answer, and yet he's still fasting and praying. I think Jesus told a parable to explain this. Luke 18, 1 through 8. I'm going to read this. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I fear, though I, though neither, I fear neither God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice. He will give justice to them speedily. Nonetheless, will the Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And again, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. All three of those words are in the, like an active tense. Ask, and keep asking. Seek, and keep seeking. Knock, and keep knocking. There's a real conflict happening in the spirit. Real conflict happening behind the scenes. And we play a part you have a role to play in what God is doing in Sonoma County. You have a role to play in what God is doing around your neighbors and in your community. But it requires persistence. It requires intentionality. It requires steadfastness. John Piper, in his commentary, or commenting on this chapter, he said this, and it just really stood out to me. Take the supernatural seriously and realize that we are in a warfare that cannot and should not be domesticated or re, uh, be domesticated by being reinterpreted from the biblical worldview and forced to fit neatly into our secular, naturalistic views of thinking about the world. It won't fit nicely into a secular worldview. We must 
Piper continues, be ready for the extraordinary as well as the ordinary ways evil spirits work. It says, don't be presumptuous as though demons and powers and principalities are weak, and yet do not be anxious as though they were stronger than Jesus. I think Piper's spot on. Disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we should not be anxious about demonic powers and forces and principalities and evil that goes on all around us. The decay of the world, the, the reality of Babylon among us, we should not be anxious by that. What we need is a vision of the glorified Son, a vision of God and his power and his majesty. What we need is to set our eyes firmly on a God who is all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing. That no matter what happens, he is faithful and he is just and he is righteous. The question is, do you see him? Have you set your eyes on Jesus? Or are we too caught up with the cares of this world, with the hardships that's in front of us, with the person that we're in an argument with, with the disagreements that's going on all around us? Are we too caught up to even see Jesus? Can you see him, the lion of the tribe of Judah? the conquering one, the one who has overcome. Seeing him gives us strength to overcome ourselves. Gives us strength to endure. Gave Daniel strength to go on late into his 80s. That's my hope. That's my prayer for us this week is that we would look to Jesus that we would catch a glimpse of the true power of the sovereign king. That no power or being or spiritual force stands any chance before our king. That he invites us, that powerful one invites us to partner with him. Invites us into the conversation to come boldly before the throne of grace and to petition before him. We do that by abiding in his presence, by seeking him regularly, by cultivating a life of prayer regularly. The more time we spend with him, the reality is the more he will rub off on us and you will begin like Moses coming off that mountain, to reflect his glory. You will look and smell and act like Jesus. We will practice the way of Jesus, and it will affect your neighbors. And in doing so, you are participating in tearing down strongholds and powers and principalities. We have everything we need. 
We're not left alone. We have the Holy Spirit. But it takes real work. It takes intentionality. It takes persistence in prayer. Amen? You guys can come up. I'm going to pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that behind the scenes you are active, you are moving, that you are all powerful and glorious. God, I ask that this week you would give us a glimpse of the Almighty. You'd show us your face that we would set our eyes on you and that you would give us strength to endure. Jesus, we trust you. Amen.